Björk there. Venus is a boy. It's four after four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Great show at 4.20. Janet Rice from the Greens joins us in the studio at 4.40. I'm talking to Rowan Myers from Transforming Tasmania. But in the meantime, I do have Michael Tragar in the studio. Michael is from the Burnett Institute. Michael, you're the lead author in a study that's looking at men on PrEP and an increase in sexually transmitted infections among them here in Victoria. But it's not related to condoms. Yeah, that's right. Um, thanks for having me. So in this study, we followed almost 3,000 gay and bisexual men who were enrolled in the PrepEx study, and we monitored their STI diagnoses. So we looked at chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. And one of the advantages of this study was we were actually able to go back and look at retrospective uh, diagnosis history when men were before they started PrEP. And this gave us good longitudinal data to kind of say, you know, from when men aren't on PrEP to when they start, what are the changes in STI diagnoses? And what are they? Yeah, sure. So we did observe an increase in STI diagnoses, but most of the increase could be explained by an increase in testing frequency. So the men on the study, um, the participants in the study, were getting tested every three months for STIs, which for, uh, for a lot of participants was an increase in their testing frequency from before they were using PrEP. So obviously the more you test, the more you're going to find and the more you're going to diagnose. And the more you diagnose means the quicker you get treated and the more um, quicker you become susceptible again to STIs. So is basically this study showing that the reason why there's an increase in STIs among guys on PrEP is because they're not using condoms? Is that why? Yeah, so it's a little bit more complicated than that, I would say. So after we adjusted for testing frequency, we still did see an increase, about a 20% increase, which we would say is probably only a modest increase. But then when we looked at some of the reasons, we, you know, we asked um, participants to fill out a survey every, survey every three months and we asked them about their condom use and the number of partners they have, their age, all sorts of things. And in the adjusted model, we actually found that condom use was not a significant predictor of STI risk. So whether you said you always use condoms, half the time use condoms or never, really did not affect how likely you were to get an STI. The things that really stood out to influence STI risk were the number of partners you had, whether you reported group sex, and, and also younger age, so younger guys were more at risk. So what lessons does this study tell us that could be used for sexual health campaigns targeting men who have sex with men? Yeah, for sure. So another interesting thing we found that you know STIs were not evenly spread across the cohorts. So more than half of participants were not diagnosed with an STI at all. So the majority of STIs actually occurred in a smaller subset of men who were experiencing repeat infections. So this tells us, you know, for future STI prevention campaigns, we can really be, you know, focusing in on a smaller group of men and having a greater population level effect. Were there any STIs in particular that were the most common? Uh, yeah, so chlamydia was the most common. And when we looked at um, anatomical site, we saw that rectal infections uh, were the most common infections. And is that typical with STIs generally among the men who have sex with men population? I imagine it would be, especially the chlamydia. Yeah, exactly. Even though the rates um, were higher, you know, it's important to keep in mind that these men were, who, uh, were men who were starting PrEP early. They were early adopters of PrEP. They were probably already at a higher risk. Um, but yeah, the same sorts of patterns um, in terms of the, the anatomical site. So how many guys did you study and over what time frame? Yes, so um, there was, in the whole study, there was over 4,000 participants, um, but we looked at just under 3,000 who had available STI testing data. Um, the average follow-up was just over a year, so 14 months. Um, but yeah, the study ran for almost two years. And were there any trans men involved in the study? I imagine there probably were. Yeah, there were a few. There were a few um, men and women and trans and gender diverse people. I think there was about 15 in the study, yeah. Wow, okay. And um, were there any aspects of this study that surprised you? Yeah, I mean, for sure, the, the fact that condom use was not a significant predictor of STI risk, you know, that's historically been one of the biggest 
um, campaigns, you know, maintaining condom use to prevent STIs. But we've seen over the past, you know, almost decade a consistent decrease um, in condom use among gay and bisexual men. So this kind of leads us to believe that, you know, the increase that we saw after starting PrEP, the reasons for the increase are probably a little bit more complicated than just people are using condoms less. So was it mainly STI infections because of anal sex or was there a high rate of infections because of oral sex as well? Yeah, it's sort of hard to um, disentangle this, but there were also high rates of um, oral infections as well, so throat infections. Yeah, right. Um, so what's next for you? I mean, this is part of your PhD study. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, how do you feel? You must feel like a, a huge pall is lifted. Yeah, it's great. It was really uh, exciting to work with the PrepEx team um, and work with some really great community members who you know helped get the study up and running. Uh, it really sort of paves the way for what I want to research is, you know, different STI prevention strategies. So now that we have these data and we know that we can focus STI prevention strategies, you know, to men who are experiencing repeat infections, what sort of strategies are going to have the best effect in reducing STI rates? Any thoughts on that? Yes. Yeah, so um, there's been some research, early research done on um, PEP and PrEP for STIs. So taking antibiotics as a prophylaxis. Um, although it's not approved yet uh, in Australia, we know that some men are already doing this. Um, really? Tell us more about that. Yes. Yeah, so uh, it's the data is not uh, – there's only early data to suggest that some men are doing it, um, but we know that there's high acceptability. Some men are willing to do it. They're interested in doing it. Um, so we, we would be interested to see also doing some modelling work to see what is the optimal number of men that could be using prophylaxis to kind of affect population STI rates. That's fascinating. So there's obviously quite a few doctors that are working with men on this. Uh, You don't hear much about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as I said, there's only been a few small studies um, in other countries, but it would be really good to kind of do a larger um, acceptability study or or even a pilot study in Australia looking at how um, this could work here. So your STI study, it's been getting a bit of media. What's the reaction been like? Um, I think the reaction has been pretty good. I mean, a lot of the messaging that we've tried to put out there is, you know, that these men are really engaged in sexual health care and they're getting tested quite frequently. So it would be, it's kind of obvious that we're going to observe an increase in STIs anyway. So I think it's going to be really important now that the study is over and PrEP has moved to the PBS and there's going to be a lot of people using PrEP in, in rural areas, especially maintaining that high level of engagement in care and high-frequency STI testing and monitoring is going to be really important. Was there um, much data available to you about men in regional areas in relation to this STI study? No, unfortunately, not, not at the time, um, but it would be really interesting to try and get some of that data and expand our coverage um, of our surveillance systems. So what demographic data did you have on study participants, if any? Um, so really just the basics. So we had the age, um, where they were accessing PrEP, and we also asked about their risk behaviour before accessing PrEP, whether they had used PrEP before the study, how long they'd been using it for. Um, yeah. And were there any age groups in particular uh, that had a high rate of STIs? Yeah, so the highest rate we observed was between the ages of 25 and 35. Um, yeah, those men had the highest rates of STIs. And what's the factor behind that, do you think? Um. We would say that's probably to do with sexual mixing patterns and sexual networks. What's sexual mixing mean? So it means uh, who you're more likely to have sex with. So basically your risk of getting STI really depends on who you're having sex with, when you're having sex, and what your sexual partner's risk of STIs are. So there's a lot of research, I think, um, left for that field to look at sexual networks and sexual mixing patterns. And did you have much information about who people were having sex with? No, not really. Um, it's quite difficult to get that information yeah, of um, and to be able to link it across different people. But I think it would be very interesting to research in the future. Absolutely. Now, you've just come back from overseas. Was that linked to this study at all? 
Uh, no, I was actually at a conference uh, in Greece, which was the conference was about HIV observational data sets. So using observational data to try and um, make causal inferences. And what did you um? What was the striking thing that you learned from that conference? What was the what was the 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 news from it, if you like? Well, actually, some of the discussions we had was really about, especially among men starting prep, we can see that an S, that STIs are going up. But how can we really attribute that to prep use alone? You know, we've had you know, U equals U and treatment as prevention, a lot more awareness and knowledge around them. Um, HIV incidence has been going down for a long time. Condom use has been going down for a long time. So it's actually quite difficult using our data to say that PrEP use was what was actually contributing to the increase in STI incidence. So we're discussing different methods, um, statistical methods, how we can kind of disentangle that. Wow. So, Michael, if people want to get more information about your study at Burnett Institute, where do they go? Yeah, of course. So the Burnett website, so burnett.edu.au. And there's also a lot of information about the other research we do there and also the Alfred um, Health website. Awesome stuff. Michael Traeger from Burnett Institute. Thanks heaps for chatting today and congratulations on your PhD. It's awesome. And your research. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. There, sat in your lap 20 after 41, in your face on 3CR with James. While the election campaign has begun, on the line we have Janet Rice, the Greens LGBTIQ spokesperson. Janet, welcome back to our 3CR. Good day. Hi, James. Wow. So the election's on, the campaign's begun. You're in full swing. 35 days to go. That's right. And who's counting? Uh, (laughs) So, Janet, what's your main policy priority for the LGBTIQ community as the Greens spokesperson for that portfolio? I mean, basically, it's getting rid of all discrimination against LGBTIQ people. Um, and that's a whole range of things. So it's sort of working, you know, for example, in schools where we know there's still an incredible amount of discrimination. It's supporting LGBTIQ people um, and supporting their mental health, so giving them access to, to health facilities. Oh, a whole range of different things. Appointing, I mean, our whole platform has got things in it like appointing a commissioner for LGBTI um, human rights and having a minister for equality, supporting survivors of ex-gay and ex-trans conversion efforts, and supporting with funding LGBTI community-based organisations so they've got the ability to really you know, self-organise and sort of provide peer support programs. And generally, you know, Changing society so that LGBTIQ people are on an equal footing with everybody else, which sadly, you know, even though we're in 2019 and we've achieved a lot, it's still um, not the case. It looks like we'll probably have a Labor government. How do their policies for the LGBTIQ community compare to yours? Like some of the things that you've just outlined, such as the uh, LGBTIQ, you know, minister, do they also have similar policies? Uh, Where's the common ground and where are the differences? Look, there's a a lot of common ground, but lots of things where um, they'll do the things that are easy to do, but the things that are really tough, they are very reluctant to commit to. And I think Labor's um, position on ending discrimination in schools is a classic case in point in that because in order to end discrimination in schools um, it's against both students and teachers you really need to challenge the power of um, some of our churches and religious organisations and they aren't as willing to sort of just say no, you know, we, we're not going to have ongoing discrimination just because of 
you know, in the name of religious freedom. Yes, religious freedom is important and, you know, people will be able to express their religious beliefs is important, but if that clashes with people's, you know, ability to live lives free from discrimination, well, then that's not good enough. <laughs> and so, and I'm very, you know, confident that, you know, in terms of really pushing to make sure that that, end, that discrimination ends, that the Greens are going to continue to champion it, where like, you know, Labor will often they will say that they're going to do it, but won't necessarily follow through. Of course, the Greens have committed to amending both the Sex Discrimination Act and the Fair Work Act to stop uh, religious schools from discriminating against queer teachers and students. The ALP supports the sex discrimination amendment side of things, but um, they're a little bit... To a little bit slow to say what their position is regarding amending the Fair Work Act. Do you call on them to also amend the Fair Work Act at the same time absolutely. to the Sex Discrimination Act, assuming yeah. they win government? And that's right, absolutely. And you know that was, we put up, I put up legislation at the um, end of last year that Labor weren't willing to support, so we could have actually legislated for it, you know, at the end of last year, but they weren't willing to go as far as that. So why not? Because, you know, those very reasons I was just talking about, that they're not willing to sort of have the fight with particularly the Catholic Church. Um, and we're saying, no, you've got to because... And, you know, we, we can't have ongoing discrimination um, just because of of the expression of religious beliefs. But You'd one think, of the though, wouldn't we... you, that actually amending the Fair Work Act would protect their members, uh, union members, who are who are queer, who are same-sex attracted? Mm, exactly. uh, it doesn't and seem look, to make I'm much sense. That, I'm hoping that Labor will be willing to, you know, go that far, but it's going to need the Greens to push them. And on lots of things, you know, that's been the, the practice. that The Greens have led the way and Labor have realised sort of reluctantly that they need to come on board. In marriage equality, we were, you know, the first people to be discussing it right back in 2004 when John Howard um, amended the Marriage Act and it took a long time for Labor to come on board, but they eventually did. So I'm, I'm hoping that they will do that. I mean, one of the things that I've actually got on the books is to have a um, Senate inquiry which is there, ready to go with terms of reference so, um, into all aspects of discrimination against LGBTIQ plus people. Um, so Labor supported us in actually getting that reference uh, or that Labor haven't supported that as yet. They've said that they're you know, sympathetic to it. So I hope that um, in the new government we'll be able to get that inquiry underway and that will then outline all of the things that need to change um, in order to end all discrimination against, against the LGBTIQ people. Let's focus on the government for a moment. How would you rate their response to Brunei's death penalty? Have they had a response? Um, <laughs> now, look, that's not quite fair. I actually asked questions in estimates of um, Senator Maurice Payne. The defence um, was with in the foreign affairs estimates. That's right, um, Minister for, for Foreign Affairs. And she said that they have made representations to to Brunei, but that's as far as they've gone. And so, you know, we need to be going much further. And in particular, we need to be acting internationally because there's such an outcry about this, you know, internationally right across uh, across the globe that Australia should be leading the way and saying this is just unacceptable. In particular, I mean, it's, it's in Brunei, but it's also on, you know, the Royal Brunei Airlines so that, you know, if you were a... Um, a, a gay or a lesbian, same-sex attracted couple, and you were there, you know, holding hands or just, you know, expressing your sexuality in some way. That's against their law. That's, you know, against Sharia law, and you could be, you know, um, 
prosecuted and and potentially killed for that. It's outrageous. Um, and we know that the Royal Brunei Airlines, in fact, are the only airlines that have got landing rights in Australia um, who have now got legislation to say, you know, to have the death penalty for LGBTI um, LGBT people. Um, and so we need to be taking a much stronger, um, much stronger action about that. We had Neil Farrow on the show last week. Do you support his petition to uh, the Transport Minister and Deputy Prime Minister Michael McCormack to ban Royal Brunei Airlines from Australia? Look, I think that's something that we should be really seriously looking at. I do accept that it needs, you know, a lot of it needs consideration to be looking at the the consequences of doing that. Um, I think it would be better actually to be using the pressure to say that we're going to do that in order to get. Um, get Brunei and internationally to be having those sorts of sanctions to get Brunei to reconsider and realise that you can't be part of the modern world if you're going to have such really dangerous, you know, homophobic discriminatory policies. So our position is we really need to, you know, look at that closely and be having the discussions with with Brunei and saying this is what we've got under consideration, um, but, you know, we want you to change your policies. Does the coalition have a spokesperson on LGBTIQ issues? No. <laughs> so, and in fact, I know I've been talking to the um, intersex community, for example, and they've been trying to get a response from the coalition on intersex issues, and they're finding it very difficult to work out, you know, who is going to be responsible for um, for replying to them. So, I what do you think that says about the government? Oh. There's no, there's no spokesperson. Um, that shows a, a huge lack of regard, I would argue. Yes. Exactly. I mean, it's just not an issue that they they treat as seriously. I mean, look, I walk, worked really closely with some um, government MPs when we got marriage equality through, and having that sort of cross-party collaboration was really important, really effective. But clearly, it's not something that they see as priority. We're not seeing, you know, any proposals to have a minister for equality out of the current government. Um, they're just not as serious about, you know, basic human rights for for same-sex attracted and gender diverse people as the rest of us are. And I think, you know, that in itself is a reason as to why they need to be turfed out of government. You mentioned marriage equality before. Of course, you played a strong role in the campaign. Was that your proudest moment in Parliament? Oh, it was a pretty big one. <laughs> Certainly in the Parliament. I mean, I've had the... Um, the privilege of being an MP and being a senator now for four and a half years, but sadly all of those four and a half years have been under the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison government. And so wins as a parliamentarian, as a Greens parliamentarian, have been pretty few and far between during those those four and a half years. And so to actually get that up as a major win, and as I said, you know, by working collaboratively with with people in the in the other parties was a massive achievement. And and you know to see the the celebrations both in the parliament and then outside is just it's it's really um i feel very proud of having been part of of making that happen and and to be the to be able to be in a position to be the voice of the community and that's what i see my role as an mp as being is that you know to be sharing power with the community to being there to be representing our communities and to be you know ending and to be getting getting good outcomes you um, have been a strong supporter of the community for long t- for a long time. You've got strong personal ties to the community. Can you tell us the backstory to to you actually being selected as the LGBTI spokesperson for the Greens? Well, I suppose my for me and you know my, my the whole backstory of my engagement with the community was you know growing up seeing seeing myself as a, a 
as a heterosexual woman um, falling in love with with um, the person who I am still married to with Penny and thinking that we were a you know a, a fairly straightforward normal heterosexual couple and then Penny sharing her big secret with me that no that you know she was she was transgender and that. We worked through a lot of that, and sort of with her and the decision for her to affirm her her gender as as a woman. Um, and for me, then coming, you know, not so much coming to terms with it, but then recognising myself and taking, yeah, you know, I was attracted to women at various times in the <laughs> over our uh, over our time we were together. But because we were together, you know, it wasn't ever ever something I acted on. So for me, you know, not only then being a an ardent supporter of trans people because of being married to a trans woman, but also affirming my identity as, as bisexual and knowing that I love Penny as Penny as I as I loved her when she hadn't affirmed her identity. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's pretty personal for me and it's it's been a lovely thing to be able to sort of, you know, be, that represent, be a representative in our community because even though we have got some, you know, high-profile... Um, same-sex attracted people. There aren't very many of us in the parliament. In fact, when I gave a speech in the parliament, was coming out publicly as as being bi, got such an amazing um, response from the bi plus community because there's nobody else in our federal parliament, and indeed in any of the state parliaments, that is has pub, is publicly out as a bisexual person. Um, and that speech um, and the response to that speech not only sort of went went across um, Australia, it sort of went all around the world. And it was yeah. It was a really a really special thing to be there as that as that representative of the bisexual community as, and to add to my the, that advocacy that I've had as a representative of the trans community. So when you talked about your personal experiences during the marriage equality debate, two coalition MPs uh, trying to convince them to support marriage equality, generally how did they react? Um, did 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 they seem as out of touch and as clueless uh, when you were talking to them as they seemed to the public on on policy issues oh, that pertain to our community? Yeah, I mean, essentially they can... For a lot of the MPs, they can, you know, they accept, say, Penny and myself as a, a same-sex couple on a personal basis, but they don't join the dots and realise that, well, you know, if you accept us, well, then you've actually got to, you know, expand that. And it's not just us, you know, as a, as an individual couple, that if you are really going to respect us, you've got to, you know, respect um, the trans community, the gender-diverse community overall. And they really have this ability to sort of just, you know, sort of say, oh yes, that's you and that's you and Penny, and that's fine. And then on the other hand, then to be part of, you know, say some of the most opposed, you know, atrocious transphobic stuff that has come out of of the government, and again, particularly during the marriage equality debate, but then also with the discussion over, you know. Um, over religious beliefs and and discrimination in schools, where they just are very happy to, you know, some of the members of of the parliament are very happy to completely throw trans people under the bus and not accept our, um, you know, the the rights of trans people to to identify, even not accept that you know trans people even exist. I mean, those people that are, are happy to make those statements in the public eye. I suppose I don't know what they think about Penny and myself. You know, they're polite to us, <laughs> but yes, you could only only think that they are um, they they've got a strong level of of discrimination and transphobia that's that's 
that's underlying their, their views. So, look, I, you know, I think it's important that that we have, that I'm there, that we're there as sort of visible representatives of, and Penny's there as a visible representative of the trans community um, in order to change opinions. Um, but I think for some of those sort of troglodytes on the government's you know, government benches, it's going to take a, lot, a long time before they see the light and I think they should be you know, turfed out of Parliament um, well before that occurs. There's a lot of bitterness in the coalition over many issues. Marriage, equality, gender diversity are just two of them. Uh, how do you think that's going to play out in the coalition uh, if they lose the election? Uh, do you think there'll be a policy lurch to the right on on those policy areas? Look, I would hope not. I would hope that they will realise that you know, their views are out of touch with mainstream Australia and that they... And needing to, they're going to need to sort of get back in touch if they are going to be, you know, successfully re-elected at some stage in the future, and to recognise that look, society has changed, and so those views, you know, they might have been acceptable to um, the Australian community, you know, decades ago, but they're not acceptable now. Um, if they indeed, you know, do end up lurching to the right, well, I think it will just make them totally unelectable. Um, and, and I think we'd probably end up with a split in the, in, in the Conservative forces. But look, you know, that's, the, that's them. Um, I, I think leave them to sort out their internals. Meanwhile, I hope, for, you know, hope that we're going to turf them out and have a change of government with you know, incoming Labor government, but very much with the Greens to be holding an incoming shortened Labor government to account, particularly by, by having us there in the Senate. Of course, just speaking of internals, the Greens have had some internal difficulties. Uh, came to the fore again this week when Nina Springle, an upper house former upper house MP in Victoria, resigns from the party. What is the party doing to heal those divisions, and are you playing a role in that? Oh, look, we've had a tough year. There's no doubt that we've had a tough year, but my view is that in terms of some of the issues that Nina raised, they are issues that are being addressed. I mean, the main thing that in her statement she said that you know we need to work better on on doing our consensus decision making better and I agree we need to do that and we're addressing that as a party um, I mean some of the broader issues that have you know the Labor Party want to keep on throwing at us of you know not being a, a welcoming place for women that certainly has not been my experience in the party and you know we've got an awful lot of women in the party who would say that they find the party a very supportive place for women and that we've got you know, the evidence to prove it. You know, we've got equal numbers of women and men in our federal party room, which is, many, which is more than the Labor Party have got, and many more than what the, the government have got. We've got women in leadership roles, the majority of leadership roles within our party organisation and within our senior staff in, in, um, across, across the Greens. You know, we stand on our record. Obviously, you know, we have had a tough year and we've got issues that we need to that we are addressing in terms of working out how we resolve differences um, more effectively. Um, so, you know, we're over, um, overhauling our, our disputes processes. We're putting lots more resources into working, helping people to have the skills to be working together collaboratively, um, resolving differences, you know, conflict resolution. Um, we're getting there. Um, and it's, it's, it has been a bit of a wake-up call, but I remain very, you know, confident and convinced that, that the Greens are a party that sort of welcomes everybody and particularly um, and, and is supportive of everybody whilst acknowledging that you know there are there are issues um, that we need to face just like there are issues that sort of you know any organization um, needs to face from time to time 
are you worried that uh, these divisions and the publicity might impact on your own re-election chances? Um, look, it obviously would have been nicer not to have had these divisions over the last year, but I think people like what we've got to... You know, like what we are offering them with a focus on, you know, we are there, we want to be creating a better future for people, we want to be creating, you know, somewhere where we're addressing climate change seriously, addressing our climate emergency, tackling economic inequality, you know, investing in education, in housing, and that we have got a really talented team of MPs. You know, I've, I think people, I, I'm very happy to stand on my record as to what I've been able to achieve as a senator in the last four and a half years, and my colleagues right across the country can do the same. Um, and so it's, you know, people, I think if if you look at what's been focused on in terms of our division, it's actually, you no, know, it's far less than what what comes out of the Liberal Party and the Labor Party over a typical term of term of, um, of Parliament. I mean, not that I want to compare myself with them, compare us with them, but I think, you know, we've got a good story of what we've achieved so far and having, you know, achieved a lot in terms of creating a, you know, a more progressive, fairer, sustainable Australia and we want to continue to be able to do that. Janet Rice, good luck in May and thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. It's much appreciated. Thanks, James.
pulp there, weeds. It's a quarter to five from In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, this week Tasmania's Parliament passed new laws that give protections to gender diverse people in that state. On the line we have Rowan Meaches from Transforming Tasmania. Uh, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure. Look, congratulations on this uh, legislation getting through. It's a wonderful achievement. Uh, what are the key rights it provides to gender diverse people in Tasmania? Well, there's a few key things that this bill enables. Obviously, it gets rid of the forced divorce requirement that everyone else has gotten rid of. But um, the two fantastic things that this does is gender-diverse people will be able to update their certificate to say their actual gender. And that might not just be male, female and X, but that could be agender or bigender or gender fluid. Um, It allows self-description with only a statutory declaration, no medical requirements whatsoever. That's and fantastic. The other, the other great thing that it does is it allows us to have the choice to not show gender at all if if we feel that'll be safer for us. Transforming Tasmania has said this legislation is among the most inclusive in the world. Um, do you think that's the case? Um, it's Listen, it's definitely arguable. There's some, um, some debate as to whether Malta has pipped us at the post, but I think... What makes this reform um, the best in the world is the fact that we've done it all at once. We haven't gone through in bits and pieces, one thing at a time, but we've gone from um, Tasmania having some really, frankly, um, terrible medieval requirements for trans people previously um, to being, yeah, world-leading. So what enabled uh, Tasmania to actually deliver this legislation? I mean, is it because you have such a strong kind of grounding in LGBTIQ activism? Uh, Did Rodney Croom play a strong role, for example, and did his experience um, really, really assist in getting this legislation into into a form that's, you know, so so world-first, so groundbreaking? Yeah, so um, it was a confluence of probably... I would say 30 or 40 different people who each individually without any one of those people, we wouldn't have got to it. Um, and everyone was, um, there was probably a hundred more people beyond that that were also working really hard. And this is sort of the, the culmination of, you know, 30 years of Rodney's campaigning, 15 years of Martin Delaney's campaigning, um, the better part of 10 years of capacity building in the gender diverse community in Tasmania. Um, it's really to say that any one person is responsible for this is um, <laughs> I think it's missing the point. This has been a fantastic victory for community empowerment. So how does the new law in particular focus on uh, non-binary and young trans people and young gender diverse people? Uh, is there any kind of um, framework within the legislation that specifically assists young people? Yeah, so... From the age of 16, you'll no longer need parental consent to change your name or your gender on your birth certificate, and you'll also be able to have the choice to have your birth certificate not show either your gender or your name change history. Now, that's really important for young gender-diverse people because um, disproportionately we will have family conflict or family violence and be kicked out of home or have to leave quite young, so that's really important. Younger than that, um, you'll still need the consent of either both your parents or a magistrate. Unfortunately, we can't do anything about that because of federal um, family court laws. How does our legislation in Victoria compare to your new legislation in Tasmania? So in Victoria, there's still a surgical requirement um, for 
trans people to be recognised and you also can't be recognised if you're non-binary. So it's male or female, that's it. And um, if you can't afford surgery or if it's not right for you, then then you don't have the right to be recognised. Um, so Victoria's got uh, quite a way to go in that regard, but we're optimistic that you guys will see that you know, after a little while, the sky hasn't fallen in Tasmania, um, and it's just made it's just made our society stronger. So, we're optimistic you guys might catch up. Absolutely, and of course, your legislation sets a precedent for the rest of the country. Uh, that's that must be resulting in huge rejoicing amongst trans activist groups all around Australia. It is, um, and Western Australia's um, Law Reform Commission actually did a reference on this very recently that came out with recommendations for almost essentially exactly the same um, legal outcomes. So um, given that they've got a Labor government at the moment and it was Labor that was um, very critical to getting this through here, um, hopefully WA will be the next and the rest of the country can follow. You have a Liberal government in Tasmania. Uh, some people would say it's pretty surprising that they supported this legislation ultimately. Um, what do you think led them to to enabling it to happen? Well, the thing is, they didn't. Um, the government itself has done everything it can to block or delay this legislation. Um, they People have said that the measures they've gone to, to to extend this and draw it out have been unprecedented in um, Tasmanian political history. But thankfully, the Speaker of our House in Tasmania, who has the casting vote um, and constitutes their majority of one, is a small-l Liberal. Um, She believes very strongly in um, the right of people to self-determine and not have government meddle in their day-to-day lives. And so she actually crossed the floor to support us um, and has copped a lot of flack from her party for it. And her name is? That's Sue Hickey. Hero of the hour. How has the media in Tasmania been representing uh, both her crossing the floor and the passage of the legislation? For example, how has the uh, Hobart Mercury been uh, responding? Yeah, by and large, we've been pretty pleased with how respectful um, the major media outlets have been. Uh, I think we're quite lucky in Tasmania in that um, our, our media outlets, they know they have to... Um, represent both sides of every story and all of that, but they also recognise the damage that negative media can do, particularly on vulnerable, young, gender-diverse people. So they always try to make sure their articles are respectful and, um, I guess, progressively slanted in that sense. You're from Transforming Tasmania. Tell us a bit about the group's history. When did it form? Yeah, so officially we launched in June last year, um, Earlier that year, um, Rodney Croom and Martin Delaney had gotten together and said, listen, we've got this one opportunity with the forced divorce reforms that every state was required to do. We've got this opportunity. We think we've got the numbers in our, both our lower and upper houses. We need to get together um, groups from the community to, to lobby and tell their, tell their stories and run a campaign around this. And um, they put out a... a a call to do some workshops on it, and much to their delight, uh, a large proportion of the community had been thinking exactly the same thing. Fantastic. Now, what's next for Transforming Tasmania? What's next? Well, the job's not done. Um, obviously, this reform still needs to be implemented, 
and it hasn't got the royal assent yet. So we're still going to be pushing to make sure there aren't any unnecessary delays around that. But the other half of this that we started with and haven't finished is um, bodily integrity rights for people born with variation in their sex characteristics. Um, we were told that um, it wasn't going to be possible to get that through with this round because it was a legislatively very complex area. But we're not going to rest until we can make sure that our intersex siblings have the same rights that we do. Absolutely. And of course, uh, if you get that through as well, it's going to have huge implications for the intersex community around the country because it also sets a precedent. Yeah, and um, obviously it's it's going to be a slog, but um, anyone who knows intersex people who've been through this trauma and grown up and and talk to them about their personal stories um, where they're able to share them, it it's obvious how inhumane and um, frankly ridiculous the current situation is. The legislative victory that you've had in Tasmania must be having enormous impacts on the uh, gender-diverse community in Tasmania. Um, uh, what are the links, I suppose, between getting legislation through and uh, the benefits it has to people's mental health? When, in four months or so, we can actually go and change our registered genders and get new birth certificates, we're going to have an enormous community party. Um, until then, I think everyone's going to be holding their breath in, in disbelief until we've got the piece of paper. Um, I don't think any of us is, is quite going to rest yet. But surely Royal Assent's only a few days away or is the government coming up with excuses to delay it? it that remains to be seen. Um, let's just say that given their behaviour over the past five months, we would be entirely unsurprised if they found excuses to delay it. So tell us a bit more about that behaviour. It sounds like it's had a, a, a traumatic effect on the trans and gender diverse and non-binary community in Tasmania. It definitely has. There was flagrant misinformation um, coming not only from the Catholic Church, as you would expect, and from um, various um, trans-exclusionary radical feminist groups, as we all love and <laughs> wish would go away, um, as well as them, the government themselves and the Attorney-General was putting out um, an unprecedented number of media releases on this topic that contained factually incorrect things. Um, it was quite dramatic how um, how heavily and freely the government endorsed misinformation on this issue. And one of the major issues was um, the Tasmanian Law Reform Institute was asked to do a reference on this reform, and the government here said, no, no, we're not going to pass this legislation until until this has been to a public consultation. And, of course, the entire LGBTI community cringed and thought, oh, God, no, not another plebiscite. But we approached the Law Reform Institute and they informed us that, actually, no, they weren't doing a reference because they can't look at legislation that's currently before Parliament. The bill would have to pass before they could, before they could do their work. And knowing this, we went back to the government and said, how can you say that we can't pass this bill because it needs the consultation when the people who've been employed to do the consultation say they can't do it until it's passed. And it actually led to the unprecedented step of the Law Reform Institute publishing their terms of reference publicly. They never do that. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.